This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. If you have a Bible with you, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 26 in a moment, uh, starting a new series which I think is going to shape us this term as a church and beyond. And we're going to be following this up in communities. And we've said for a long, long time it's important to be in community. It really is this term. And I really just want to encourage you to, if you're not part of a community yet, uh, to be, get involved in community because we're going to be following up what we talk about on Sundays and going on this journey together as a church family. And the easiest way of doing that and the best way of doing that is together in community. All right, so what you find in Genesis 26 is at the beginning, about halfway through the book, the first book of the Bible. Uh, I just want to give a little bit of context, I guess, as to why we're doing this series, Redig the Wells, um, it's already been referenced numerous times in our meeting. We've had 18 months now of life impacted and affected by COVID, and I think it would be very unwise. It would be uh, foolish, perhaps, e- even, even dangerous maybe, I guess, to act as if the last 18 months haven't happened. <laughs> and just, oh, life's back to normal now, let's just get on with it. Because the reality is all of us have been affected in the last 18 months. I I probably, if I'm really honest, didn't really appreciate just how much the last 18 months have taken out of me personally until I was having a bit of process time over the summer. And all of us have, whether we realize it or not, been affected by it. When the first lockdown came and then the second one and then the third one and all the rest of it, this church stood incredibly, unbelievably firm. We adapted, we were flexible, we were patient, we were faithful, faith-filled, generous, committed. We prayed, we gave, we served, we loved. I just want to say a massive well done and a huge thank you to you. But as we come out of the other side, it's not like, well, that's it, done now. There is a multitude, frankly, of things going on at the moment. Just the, the sheer length of time of not being able to do the things that we would normally do as a family, as a body, has had a toll on us, has had an effect on us. New rhythms and new habits have emerged in each of us, some of them good, some of them not so good. I'll be honest, there are certain things over the last 18 months personally in my life that I did unbelievably well. And then there was an awful lot that I really didn't do very well in. And quite a lot of it was probably a bit like that. Sometimes, yeah, good and often not. Same is true as us corporate leaders as well. Some of us here today and in the wider church with other meetings and stuff, are done, people have done really well. For others, it's been a really, very, very difficult period and everything in between. Had all sorts of prophetic words over the last however long uh, to that effect about getting match fit, about bringing sheep back into the fold. Some are injured and wounded. Some have wandered off. Some are anxious. Some are just a little bit too giddy and a little bit too excited and a little bit too raring to go and just need to be reminded that they're a sheep, not a horse. we need to address a whole load of things and that takes time it's a process we've again we've heard it throughout worship of reshaping and reforming this has also been a tremendous time of upheaval in the christian world there's been lots of movement in this time very very practically lots of people have moved in this church some have come in some have gone out God's called some people to some new places. Others have moved for jobs or family or whatever reason. Again, from here and to here. We need to put names to faces. We've had births. I see some new babies in the room. 
We've had deaths. People who, when we were last here, all together 18 months ago, are no longer here. They've died. We've had engagements. Got a wedding again, a couple of weeks' time. Congratulations, you two. We've had victories. We've had tragedies and everything in between. We need to hear one another's stories. We need to learn from one another. We need to grow together. It's been also a tremendous upheaval in the wider Christian world. Leaders have gone, have left. People have moved on, have gone, have left. Some have come, some have stepped down, some have stepped up. There's been changing of lanes. There's been picking up of new things and laying down of old things. It's a process, truthfully, that hasn't finished yet. We can't simply rush on from it. And into that mix, we have the big questions of, of what's God calling us to be? What's God doing in us, done in us, continuing to do in us and through us? Where's he taking us next? What would he have us be? What is he calling us to? And that's where we hit with Genesis 26 and the redigging of the wells. In an elders and senior leaders meeting a number of months ago now, this particular passage was brought as a prophetic picture of where we're at as a church. And we felt it was significant at the time. And immediately in that moment, I was reminded of a prophetic word from about six or so years ago uh, over me and over this church. I was sitting, I was meeting, uh, I was sitting in a meeting of uh, leaders in London and someone who didn't know of anything of our situation here in this church prophesied this very passage over me and over us. And the reason it was significant is because it was during that time of the period where Dave was transitioning the leadership of this church to me. And truthfully, it has shaped how I've led here and tried to lead here, and I think it will again. So let's get into the story, and uh, we will have a look together. Verse 1 of Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerah to Abimelech, the king of Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands." And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. I just want to pause there and back up for a moment. Genesis tells the story of creation, creation of the world, but it then also tells the story of the creation or, I suppose, the forming of the nation of Israel, of the people of God. So God makes a covenant promise to uh, Abraham. That's the reference in these verses. Genesis 12, he says, I'll bless you and I'll make of you a great nation so that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And by the time we get to this part, Genesis 26, Abraham's died. And at this, but, but, but at this point in the story, the promises haven't. The promises of God remain and they will carry on with the next generation. You know, God deals in generations. It's a significant part. God deals in generations. And Genesis tells the story of creation and then fall and then the beginning of his rescue plan, his redemption plan for the world. And the story unfolds in 10 stages. Each stage, you can go and look at this if you want, it starts with the phrase, these are the generations of. 
You know, we tend to deal in months and years, 18 months as if it's a long time. We might deal in decades. God deals in generations. One generation has the responsibility to run with the promises of God, to contend for the things of God in their generation. And then the next generation does the same. And as they do so faithfully, they they face different circumstances, they face different challenges, but they carry the same promises and they receive the same blessings. Let's just skip a few verses and then we'll carry on reading. Verse 12, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines ended him. Just remember this. Verse 1, there was a famine in the land. It was not a good land to be in. But he didn't go down to Egypt where there was no famine, where it was good, where the grass was greener, where it would have been okay for him. He didn't go there because God told him not to go. Despite all the obvious attractions and if you had gone there, it would have been, oh, it would have... Materially seems so good for you, but he did what God said, and consequently, God blessed him. Things went well for him. And now, verse 15, we get to the wells bit. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. That's because he's been blessed by God. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gera and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. So Abraham dug the wells in his generation. And some of them had been filled in. And so they needed to be re-dug. Now, just think about the importance of wells in an arid country for a moment. Wells were very, very, very important. In fact, they were essential to life, like literally. You didn't have a well, you didn't have water, you didn't have life. And so, therefore, wells were a thing of value. Physically, wells mattered. They provided life-giving supply of water. But wells in these days were also more than just places that gave water, They were places where communities gathered. They were places where life happens. They were very scarce. And so they attracted people from all around to them. That's why so many of the Bible stories took place at wells. Because they were like community meeting points. They were where people came. It was where the action was. It was where life was. And that's where things happened. Jesus hung out at wells an awful lot. But wells were also a symbol of a thriving community. If you had a well, you prospered. And so wells had, had value. And we know from experience in our own lives that anything of value requires us to contend for them. Things that matter often face opposition. Why is this happening? Well, it's because what you're giving yourself to is something that matters, no doubt. Opposition comes when we are contending for something that matters. And so in those days, if you had a well on your land, people would want to take it from you. And so you'd have face opposition, and you'd need to defend them. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 19. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gera quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. 
Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called it its name Sitna. And when he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel it over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Abraham and his generation dug wells, and it cost them something to do it. It would, be, it would take a, a tremendous act of faith, if you think about it, to dig a well. And then it would have taken a whole load of physical and emotional effort as well, just to undergo the process of digging. Just think, I mean, they didn't have any radars or anything to work out where the water was. No special equipment to say, dig here and do this. No equipment to actually do it. They'd, we think it's here. We're going to dig. This is going to take some time. There's a cost to it. Wells were costly but they were also essential. They were life-giving symbols of thriving communities. Abraham's generation dug the wells. Isaac's generation needed to redig those wells because over time they had been forgotten. They had been filled in or they'd not been forgotten. They were just not functioning as they were. Oh, there used to be a well there, but it's, it's not there anymore. Some probably had been deeply filled in, others perhaps not so much. But Isaac redug the old wells, and we read here, he found water again, and life flowed again as it did before, and so the faith of a prior generation rebore fruit once again in a new generation. But you know, Isaac also dug some new wells in new places, in new lands, and new life flowed. He was encouraged by the faith of those who came before him, who dug deeply, who fought battles, who defended things against, uh, against opposition, who invested emotional and physical energy and undertook costly acts of faith. And inspired by all of that, he dug and he struck water. And the rest of the story here in these last few verses is Abimelech recognizing that God is with Isaac and he who formerly contended against Isaac now makes a pact with him and says, okay, we're not fighting you anymore. So what's this got to do with us? Well, individually, of course, we, again, we've heard it throughout our worship in very, very practical ways. Some of us probably need to redig some wells in our own lives in order to sp- experience God's living water in new and fresh ways again in our lives. Maybe there's been 18 months or so of filling in, perhaps not completely, but just in certain areas, in certain wells of your life, there's certain things that just need to be redug again. Because, you know, the Bible talks about wells a lot, not just physically. It also uses wells as a metaphor, as a a symbol of salvation and a symbol of life. Isaiah 12, verse 3, has a picture of drawing water from the wells of salvation with joy. If there's areas of your life which are lacking joy at the moment, it may just be that you need to go and redig some wells to go and discover life-giving water with joy. Jesus himself promised whoever drinks from the water that I'll give him will never get thirsty again, ever. Perhaps some of our wells have been blocked or stopped for whatever reason. And wells are some of the ways in which we access the life-giving water. Time in the word is a well. Time in prayer is a well. Time in worship is a well. 
Time in refreshing, time in community with other people who do us good is a well. Time with being filled or refilled with the Spirit is a well. And digging wells is, takes time. It's not a quick thing. And it's costly. You'll likely face opposition in it. If Satan or sin or just the pressures of this world have blocked up your wells, you've got to dig. Don't go dig again. Redig those wells and experience the living water again. Establish things that are good for you spiritually, emotionally, physically. We're whole people. We're not separated out. We make a massive mistake if we think my physical well-being and my emotional well-being, my spiritual well-being are totally separate things. No, I, I always do better when I sleep more, run more, eat better, don't stay up too late, and don't spend too much time on my phone. Add into that, hang out with people who are good for me, read my Bible and pray, and generally I'm doing okay. It ain't rocket science. <laughs> not saying it's easy, but it's not rocket science. It's not, oh my gosh, you have to do what? Hang out with people who are good rather than not good. Don't watch junk. Don't spend too much time flicking through social media. And read the Bible and pray and go to community and be in church. <gasps> who would have thought? Yeah, I so quickly forget. I feel lethargic because I eat rubbish and don't run. So I run and eat better and I feel not so lethargic. I wake up feeling and I realize it's because I went to bed four and a half hours ago. And I haven't got the excuse of small children anymore. Well, I have, but not really. It's my choice. They ignore me. Establishing things that are good for us in the wholeness is redigging wells. What wells do we need to redig this new term? But corporately, there's some stuff going on here too. This redigging of the wells is a prophetic prompting to look again at who we are, what God has called us to, and how we accomplish that. You know, a lot has changed in the last 18 months. But as we've already heard in worship, an awful lot remains the same. Some of those things just need to be redug for a new post-COVID world. Wells matter, right? They do. They matter. They are the way to access life-giving water. When I looked back in my journal at the prophetic word that God spoken at the time of the leadership transition here, it was all, I was just looking through it, and there was all the stuff from Genesis 26, and then there was this line that was prophesied over me and over us as a church. The guy said, there is nothing wrong with the foundations. They just need to be relayed in the context of the new things going on and the new cultural setting. I feel that's where we're at once again as a church. Looking again, redigging, focusing on what God has called us to and ensure that that's what we're doing. You know, this isn't about kind of everything changing. This is not some new, big new strategy or new unveiling of some new plan. It's about realigning ourselves with who and what God has called us to be, his plans, his purposes, his mission. You know, we still live with prophetic promises in this church. We still carry things in our DNA. And you know, the mission hasn't changed. We still believe that God is calling us to live out our story within his much bigger story. Extending the kingdom by building a church of lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds, made up of lots of smaller communities in lots of different locations, reaching lots of different people and lots of different nations. Still dream of exactly the same things we've always dreamed about. We dream of seeing multiple gospel-shaped communities reaching their communities with the good news of Jesus. We still dream of seeing the gospel impact Southeast London and beyond by reaching more people, serving more people, loving more people. 
You know, the big picture method of how we're going to do it hasn't changed either. <laughs> Reaching the nations by advancing through prayer, fueled by worship. Identifying more leaders, starting more communities, starting more locations, and expecting gospel transformation. None of that's changed. What has changed is the focus and the intentionality with which we do it. We desire in this next season to be more personal. Focusing in not on Sunday attenders. Just attend on Sunday and it's all fine. No, 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 but on making disciples. You know, we are a family on a mission together. A multi-generational, multicultural, extended family that just keeps learning and growing and going together, warts and all. More personal, but more patient with it too. Less busy. God's ways are not our ways. Our job is not to try and get God to do something. Hey, God, I've got this great idea. Come and bless it for me. He's already working. Our job is to see where is God working, what is he doing, and then go and join him. To continue to be more flexible, more adaptable, more, frankly, unopen to uncertainty, open to uncertainty. I don't quite know what. I don't know, quite know how. I don't know. But God seems to be in it, so let's go for it. More personal, more patient, and ultimately as well, more local. Loving, serving, reaching people in the places where we live. Absolutely prioritizing the making of disciples and believing that the best way to make disciples is in community and on mission. And that the deepest community comes when we are on mission together as Jesus' disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit. All pointless without him. This term, we will be making some steps forward. We will be moving out of the phase we're in at the moment of all just gathering back together in this place. And truthfully, that will probably happen quite quickly. There are all sorts of factors that yeah, I'm sure you can imagine that we've got to kind of work through at the moment, which is why I'm not here saying exactly when, but be ready or likely be soon and very soon. It's going to happen soon and fairly quickly. We'll move into the next phase. But this is the important thing to get. We are not going back to just how we were before. We believe God has called us to reshape some things to redig some of the wells, to ensure that some of those things that God has put deeply in the DNA of this church is fully on display in every location that we find ourselves in. To ensure that we continue to have a commitment to pioneering, to seeking God and following his lead. To be a church that is shaped by the word but led by the spirit. With a heart for the nations of the world, a desire to be a prophetic statement of what one day will perfectly be, this richly beautiful, diverse, multi-everything kind of church, served by people who exhibit again and again and again radical generosity of money and time and talent and treasure, with a heart for the least, a heart for the last, a heart for the lost, releasing leaders to be all that God has called them to be, and all underpinned by a foundation of the extravagant, outrageous, scandal grace of God to ensure that all of these things, these deep foundations are relayed in the context of the new things going on and the new cultural setting. That we might prioritize growing as disciples, family members, missionaries, seeing more people saved and added as we focus on and prioritize being more personal, more patient, and more local. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know exactly what this will all look like. That's part of this next chapter that's beginning to be written. We're going on this journey together, prayerfully seeking the Lord. But I do know this, everybody is involved. Everybody is involved. 
Every generation has a part to play. And the one generation to another is actually really important. We're going to look a bit more at that next week. A fully functioning family is one that has multiple generations playing their part, running alongside one another. But the crucial thing is they're playing their part, not someone else's part, their part. And that may change in the next season. In our family, we're particularly fond of sport. I appreciate not everybody is. But as a family, we're big into cricket. And again, I appreciate not everyone is, but you're weird. We, we love cricket in our family. Absolutely love it. And earlier this year, uh, we joined um, a local cricket club. And the kids play in the junior teams. And Hannah and I seem to spend every Sunday night, every Sunday night, every summer night down at the club. And one of the things that struck me about this, about the club, and it's a big club. There's loads of men's teams, women's teams, boys, girls teams, the whole caboodle. What, what struck me is how they operate. It's like some big multi-generational family. Everyone's involved, and not just in their own area. I mean, everyone who's actually involved, I'm sure there's some people who are not, but everybody who's involved are really, really passionate about the present success of the club. As far as I can tell, everyone gives up their time voluntarily to make things happen. Every game that any of my kids were playing in or any game that we went that they weren't playing in, there were people there who were not directly involved with any of the players playing, but are there supporting, encouraging, and serving. Some were scoring, some were umpiring, some were setting up the pitch, some were looking after the barbecue, some were doing this, some were doing that. They were all bothered about the now, but they were all bothered about the future too. The first team players gave up their, give up their time to go and coach the juniors. Those that used to play in the adult teams now have a different role. Some umpire, some score, some are ground staff, some are on committees. I don't know the half of it. The lady who runs the team that my eldest plays in, her kids played at the club and now her grandkids play at the club. And she's still involved. As well as coaching one of the junior teams, she's also the club welfare officer. And she also got me involved. I'm not quite sure how it happened, but following a conversation with her, I got enrolled on a coaching course, and now I'm not only a qualified coach, but I'm taking over the team next season. <laughs> I genuinely aren't really sure how it happened, and I don't think I'll ever be as good as she is. She's absolutely brilliant at it. I said to her, well, if you'd be better than this at me, but if I'm doing it, what are you doing? And she just said to me, this is an older lady, she said, same as I always do, same as I've done with you. I'll take over a team where it's needed, and I'll train someone to take, up, take over from me afterwards. And she said, and if there's no team for me to coach, I'll do something else until there is. What an attitude that is. And as part of the process of becoming the future England coach, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had to do my uh, DBS and safeguarding, all that kind of stuff. And the guy at the club who checks all your documents and did that, I got chatting to him. He told me that he played cricket as a junior. He was an older guy here. He actually said his father had helped set up all of the junior teams. That he'd gone through every junior team. He'd played in all the men's teams as well. That he's retired from playing now. His son plays in the first or second team, I'm not sure. But this guy hasn't retired from the club. His role has changed. It took him a few minutes to tell me all the things he's ever done there. And he's still right at the heart of everything now, just as passionate as he ever was. Here's the point. Doesn't matter whether you like cricket or understand what umpiring is or scoring is. This place runs like a family. Now, we're new into it. 
So I'm sure there's a whole load of politics and a whole load of mess that I haven't yet worked out. And next season, I'll be going, what the heck did I get into? <laughs> but it's like a multi-generational family. People there love it, they serve it, they give themselves to it, and it's a cricket club. I mean, I love cricket. I really love cricket. But there is no local cricket club that's going to be marching triumphant into the new heavens and the new earth. And if something so earthbound that isn't a family acts so like a family, how much more should an eternal, actual family act like an actual family? A multi-generational family where everyone is involved, passionate about now, everyone has a part to play, serving the now, but also serving the future. I just want to finish with another story from my summer. We were in Robin Hood's Bay. It's the only reason I go on holiday to have sermon illustrations. <laughs> Robin Hood's Bay up on the North Yorkshire coast. And there's this really steep hill there if you've ever been down to the sea. I mean, my goodness, it's steep. And we're walking back up it and we stop near the top, mainly just to get our breath back. And there's a plaque there that tells the story of the most incredible lifeboat rescue. It's January 1881. And there have been violent storms and terrible weather. And a boat had gotten into trouble and it was being wrecked on the rocks out at sea. And the Robin Hood's Bay lifeboat wasn't seaworthy. So this telegram gets sent from a vicar to a vicar or a master to a vicar, I'm not entirely sure what, up to Whitby, which is several miles north on the coast, asking for the Whitby lifeboat to be launched. But the storms are so bad that the Whitby lifeboat can't get out to sea. So they decide to carry the lifeboat overland, somewhere between a six to eight mile journey over the moors through the snow. And so the lifeboat men set off carrying this boat with some help of horses and they had to clear seven foot snow drifts up serious hills. If you've ever been up there, there's, it's up and down. As they tore through hedges, as they knocked down walls, as they cleared snow, as they pushed and as they pulled, others joined them. Farmers stopped what they were doing and came and helped. Locals stopped what they were doing and came and helped. Even children came and helped. And there was 200 of them in the end clearing the way from Whitby, whilst at the same time many others started clearing the way from Robin Hood's Bay up the hill. And when they reached the top of that steep hill, there was a massive cheer erupted. Two hours after leaving Whitby, the lifeboat was launched in Robin Hood's Bay. And the first launch failed. The eight oars were broken. They needed to be replaced. And eventually they went again, and they couldn't get out through the breakers. But a local man knew the, a better route and guided them through it, piloted the boat through. And this time, the entire crew of the wrecked ship were saved. In the end, nearly a 1,000 people were involved in the rescue. A genuine, real community effort. Everyone involved, doing things they wouldn't normally do, sacrificing whatever it takes, playing their part in just some small, seeming small way to clear that path, all for the sake of rescuing the lost. Brothers and sisters, a lot has changed over the last 18 months. More things will likely change again, but you know, some things haven't changed. The mission to seek and save the lost has not changed. The great commission to go and make disciples of all nations has not changed. The promises of God have not changed. As we go and do that, as we go to make disciples of all nations, Jesus in that very next verse, sentence says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the big picture that we need to keep in our hearts and in our minds. We are part of the ingathering of the elect from every tribe and every tongue. And at the end of the age, that's where we will be 
with the multitudes in the presence of the king. As we redig some of these wells over the next few weeks, as we pray, as we assess the lessons that we've learned in COVID, as we reshape some things, as we continue to prioritize growing as disciples, family members, missionaries by being more personal, more patient, more local, it's going to require all of us to prayerfully go on this journey together. I said right at the beginning, some 18 months ago, that we, to get through this COVID thing, would need to be patient, flexible, and adaptable. We're going to need to continue to do so, being family being those, Philippians 2, who do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own self-interests, but to the interests of others. Remember Jesus in John 13 said, this is how you'll know him. This is how the world will know that these are my disciples, not because of their plan, not because of the good stuff they might seem to be, by their love. How they love one another as family. We're going to need to continue to put on love, put on humility, put on grace, put on forbearance, put on kindness and generosity. And we're going to need to keep that big picture ahead of us at all times. Imagine being part of that lifeboat rescue just for a moment. You know, I'm digging this snow in this freezing cold backside of some hill somewhere that is miles away from anywhere that no one's ever really going to say, why am I doing this? Because this helps that. They couldn't see it, those thousand people, until right at the very end. I'm just digging this. I can't see what this is doing. I can't see even where the wreck is. I can't see even where the boat's going. I'm just digging this. But they understood that bigger picture, so they kept doing it. And even when they finally could see it, even when there's a massive cheer and the boat is going out to sea, <laughs> the first attempt failed. It went wrong. Just given all this and it looked disaster. Oh, well, let's all go home then. No, 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 no. They go again. Why? Because this helps that. Verse 5 of Philippians 2, I'm finishing. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in, the human for, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This helps that. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. You are so good. Thank you that your mission to seek and save the lost did not stop before it came to us. Thank you that you didn't get bored on the backside of some hill somewhere, but on that hill you went to the cross and you bled and died in our place making a way for us to be received as sons and daughters, forgiven and free, not because of anything good we have done, but because of your grace and your mercy. Help us keep this big picture. Help us keep this big picture as we enter into this, frankly, potentially very vulnerable stage for us as a church. Oh Lord, would we keep our eyes fixed on you? Would you help us to reshape things, to redig some wells? 
Would you help us to recognize that the covenant promise to Abraham was passed to a new generation in Isaac, was passed again. It was ultimately fulfilled in you, Jesus, and now because we are in Christ. We live as those in the good of all of that. Lord, we recognize that in this new generation, this new season, this new period, we're going to face difficult, different battles and different circumstances and different challenges, but the promises of God remain. You are on the throne. You are building your church. You are for your people. May each of us know that to play our part in the extension of the kingdom, the building of the church. Renew us, refresh us, restore us. In Jesus' name.